A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a podcast that is today all about depictions of the banks of the Thames, it may come as a surprise to you that you're going to need to know if you don't already about the curse of Superman, which is an affliction besetting those who've appeared in screen adaptations of the comics. In fact, it arguably beset those who created the character as well. One of them died in poverty, but it's the actors who've played Superman who've really seemed to have suffered. Kirk Allen... Uh, played Superman in the 1940s and uh, suffered from Alzheimer's and died. Bud Collier voiced the first Superman cartoon from 41 to 43, then in 66 and a couple of years later died of a circulatory ailment. Lee Quigley was the baby version of Superman in 1978. He died aged 14. Christopher Reeve, well, of course we all know uh, what happened to him. George Reeves in the 50s sort of made the role his own and ended up under suspicious circumstances in 1959 dying of a controversial gunshot wound. Marlon Brando, Margot Kidder, Richard Pryor, even Christopher Reeve's widow. It is suggested that they, alongside many of the technical folk on Superman films, have come a cropper due to the curse of Superman. And so when I found out that one of my guests today worked on two of the Superman films, managing some of the flying effects, had had his heart explode on him. Yes, I really do mean that. And that he'd survived against incredibly poor odds. I wondered whether he is in fact an incredibly rare breed, somebody who has beaten that curse. Of course, it could be a load of old nonsense. All the same, I'm glad he's with us and able to tell us about the project that he and his partner, Jill Sanders, have been working on, that of chronicling the banks of the Thames. It's November the 7th, 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and from south-west London, this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a strong through from your front door. Far off plays, no one cutters, babe, you with your name, how you raise the 
we are midstream on today's episode. We're on the Thames, and the Thames is going to have a big profile on the episode this week. By way of explaining their project to me, Jill Sanders and John Ingalls, with whom I am now, have just shown me a 20-minute introductory extravaganza. I wish everybody did this that I ran into on a day-to-day basis, 20 minutes explanation of who they are and what they're up to. Then I could choose whether to talk to them or not. I have seen the introduction. I choose to talk to these people, uh, which is good because we're on an island with only the three of us here. Jill, John, hi. Hello. Hello. The name of the island, first of all, and I'd love to locate the island in amongst the other islands here and in the the drift of the Thames generally. It's Garrick's 8, and it's about um, half a mile upstream of Hampton Court, off the coast of Hampton. And uh, it's an island without a bridge, so you had better be polite, because you're going to have to go back over in our boat. (laughs) That's That's a great incentive for a friendly interview, then. So how wonderful are you both? <laughs> Does that work? Is, is that, that's the sort of thing you're after, right? Oh, well, we are wonderful because we're achieving something which is wonderful, we feel, which is this uh, record of the Thames through London today. This is the Panorama of the Thames project. That's right. And it's a record of the river through London today and from the past. The past is where I think my questioning ought to begin here because we have been watching a video and it seems to me as though you've got tandem projects going on. You've got the revivification of a panorama from 1829. I hope I got the dates right. And we're also looking at a much more up-to-date project, 2013-2014, that seeks to do in photography what the first project did in pen and ink. So perhaps the right place to start is by talking about the older project and what it is. Well, as you say, in 1829, London bookseller Samuel Lee produced this panorama, which covered 30 miles, I think it is, of Riverside, between uh, Richmond and uh, Waterloo Bridge. 15 miles of river, 30 miles of riverside. And at that time, they didn't have very good colour printing, if any at all. So it was done on, uh, I believe, 45 separate sheets, printed uh, in aquatint, which uh, which produces a a black outline and and a series of greys. And then each copy was hand-watercoloured. And he produced a number of these. When the pages were stuck together... It made up about 60 feet of painting, and then it was folded at concertina fashion into a book. And they were sold, I think it was £1, 8 shillings for the uncoloured one, and £2, 16 shillings for the coloured one, with all that painting in it. Amazing. And the purpose of this depiction of the of both riverbanks was what? Well, I think the reason he did it, he didn't actually explain what it was, but I think it must have been in his mind that it was a commercial venture to sell it as a as a guide to the river for people who were going up and down in the steamboats, which went coincidentally from Westminster to Richmond at that time. Um, of course, it was hand watercolored, as I say, so if it was used on the decks of boats with all the water, the rain, the splashing, it couldn't have lasted terribly long. I've actually seen six copies of it. Actually, I've seen more than that. I've photographed six copies of it, and some of them are very badly damaged. And what we sought to do in this project was to restore the images back to where they originally were, as we think it would have been uh, when it was first published. Yes, and uh, we've now put these on a website. It's one continuous image, and you can travel in 1829 from Richmond to Lambeth, and from Westminster to Twickenham. 
And in addition to that, we've been able to um, attach information to all the buildings. We've had input from a lot of local historians. They've been very, very good and helpful. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's a real picture of life, both um, you know, by image and with information of the Georgian Thames. Tell me what captures your imagination as you're looking at those pictures. And I wonder if you can do this without comparing and contrasting with the present-day riverbank. Yeah, it's very different from the present-day riverbank. There are lots and lots of areas along the riverbank which were meadows and market gardens and pastures. So you've got all that, which is very interesting to see. And when you do go back and look at it now, you can only wonder how different it is. Uh, But then there's a lot of industry, and that's extremely interesting. I mean, Brunel had sawmills, and there were breweries with piggeries because they fed the ex, you know the grain to the pigs and bullocks and so they all had something else going on and silk factories all sorts of very interesting industries along the river and it's very interesting to see some places where you can still make comparisons you can actually still detect something from then that is here now not very many places but some buildings churches some of the older houses and a few of the pubs is it a sweeping generalisation to say that no panorama of the Thames, nothing complete was made in between the 1829 and the one that we're really here to talk about? I think there were some later ones done, but there was nothing covering such a, a long area as that one. So we are 30 miles of Riverside, and I don't think... There, there were a few done of central London, and the city in particular, but I, I, I think it's right to say there wasn't another one. At least I, I've never found another one that covers such a, a long area until this one. Other than, of course, um, Google and Google satellite pictures and Google Earth and so on, that does cover the same sort of area, but doesn't go into the detail of every building as, as we're doing. We're, of course, familiar with the uh, scary Google vans with the cameras pointing in all directions, which seem to follow me around every now and again when I'm having a cup of coffee and they'll stick their lens through the window of the coffee shop or whatever. I didn't know that they did a boat version of that. Yes, they, they um, put one of their cameras and multiple cameras onto a Port of London Authority boat and went down to Richmond on it but um, it's not the same thing that, that, that we do I think uh, ours is much more detailed than that and we've been working on it a very long time before I think Google started theirs anyway when we do our photography along the Thames we do make sure that we get optimum conditions and that's what makes the Thames look so beautiful I think in our panoramas so we go we try to do low tide in the tidal areas that's not always possible we do it in the winter when we don't have leaves on the trees and we do it when the sun is right the light is right at the time of day so you've got light on the buildings that takes quite a bit of planning and then you know the best laid plans are ruined by the weather anyway but we do do it to get the optimum out of the views of the Thames so it does look really beautiful and the overall aim is to end up with a stitched together picture of the Thames both banks and you, you mentioned well okay so this this really interests me because I've been trying to peg you since I arrived at your island and um, at first as you walk in there's a wood-burning stove and a very country living style arrangements here we mentioned the boat uh, but then you there's also a very high-tech vibe going on here it seems to me like you're kind of midstream in a, a number of different ways it seems like you're looking forward as much as looking back Yes, I that's true. That's how we are. And I need explanation as to how you've got this innovative technology that you're talking about and what, what, is, what is the innovation in the photography? To make panoramas 
that are so long appear to be seamless and at the same time to be able to show them on an iPhone or on, on the web is very, very difficult because the files that you end up with are absolutely enormous. We are talking approaching gigabytes inside some of these files and it's just not even possible to think about putting something like that on a, an iPad. So you have to devise ways in which it can be shown on an iPad or even a phone without um, exhausting the memory on the, on the device or the processing power of the device. And that's been quite innovative developing this technology are you going to be revealing anything about your not not if you have a commercial um, <laughs> angle here. well it, it there are other systems that that uh, do a similar thing other ways of showing panoramas um where you break them up into into tiles into smaller amounts and are serving those up in pieces so in effect you're just showing bits of the panorama at each time uh but there was nothing that would do what we wanted to enable this linear panorama to happen also it's very difficult because in the photography there's something which is very difficult for photographers to deal with which is when you move a camera sideways all the perspective changes so you can't just put your camera on a boat and hope that uh, and take lots of pictures and find that they fit together they won't so you have to find a more sophisticated way of putting these together actually it's quite difficult so what we've done is divided it into planes so we have foregrounds we have middle grounds and we have background if you imagine a situation where uh, you're taking a series of photographs uh, from one side of the river to the other side say the sun is right opposite you uh, when you take your first picture you've got the buildings you want to see so you move along so you take a picture of the second building but the sun is still there as the sun doesn't move. You move along a bit further, take a picture of the third building, and again, the sun is still there. So if if you think then you've also got trees in the background and other buildings in the background, church towers and all sorts of things. So as you move along, you're having this problem of multiple suns, multiple buildings, multiple everything. And in order to deal with that, uh, which, is a, which is the killer, really, on doing some of this stuff um you have to, the way i came up with and i originally did this on movies many years ago is to divide them up into separate planes so that you're dealing with foregrounds midgrounds and backgrounds uh you you join them separately and then you composite them so that the in such a way that the end result looks credible in fact we what we try and do having having done this put one together we get people who know the area very well probably people who walk it every day in some cases and we show them the panorama and we say what do you think of this and if they don't say hang on that's not right we think we've we've done it all right I and mean, that's no one has ever said that something isn't right no people get quite emotional actually when they look at some of these panoramas in the film uh, because i suppose it comes with the music and they say oh well you got married there and that's the sort of thing they think about which is really lovely it, it brings back the real place to them oh so you're tricking her eyes this is fantastic well filmmaking is all a trick you know you can't make movies without tricking people as soon as you put uh, a a lens a, um, a frame around something you're fooling people to start with because there's things you're not showing them but in movies 
But that's a matter of selection rather than reconstruction. Uh, in in movies, you're you're creating something that the script tells you to create, uh, and that's not usually something that's real. So you're fooling people all the way through. In the seventies, I worked on TV commercials, and I mean there wasn't a TV commercial I worked on that I don't think we were telling the truth. That that's the whole game is to make something look like. Uh, something that it isn't basically you improve on it Um, you can't for example in those days we couldn't film things like chocolate and chocolate bars or ice cream because it would melt under the lights so you had to make uh, artificial structures that look like the real thing you have all this I I won't mention any product names but uh, we we did an awful lot of them and uh, that's visual effects and um, uh, that's the area in which I, I worked for a very long time. Now here, we are reconstructing the riverside to make it look like it actually looks. And how honestly we do that depends on our integrity as makers of the of the project. Uh, we could cheat. We could make some buildings larger and some smaller. We could change the distance between them. But we're, we're, we're doing this to create an honest uh, representation of, of the riverside. Is is there a problem? And, and I'll I'll compare it when I go to a museum and uh, they say, "Well, here is a Joan of Arc's sword," and I'm admiring Joan of Arc's sword for a few minutes, thinking, "Well, her her hand gripped this uh, handle and so forth." And then there's a little sign in the corner that says, "Actually, this is a reproduction. We don't know. This is what we think the sword looked like." Uh, and I feel a little bit swizzed. And I just wonder if if there's uh, a question mark in your mind on on that sort of level at, at any point in the process. No, because it is... I would expect you to say that. <laughs> it is... A, it is, it is the, the objective is to a record of the river as it is now, and, of course, who knows what um, Liberty's uh, Lee's artist took in 1829. We don't really know. We can, we can see that he made some buildings bigger, the more important ones bigger, and probably the less important ones smaller. You can see that in some places. Uh, and I, think, I noticed a few of the angles were changed for convenience as well. Yes, yes, obviously. You know, he, he had to do that. But the idea today is to create a record of the River Thames as it is now. So we want to be as accurate and as clear about that as possible. And testing it on local people who know it very well is, is a very good way of making sure you haven't wandered off in some direction that um, makes it look different. The, the Eiffel Tower isn't in Isleworth. <laughs> I think artists from the beginning of time have done this. Um, what, what you see in a in a painting is not necessarily exactly what was there. It's an interpretation of the artist of what was there. But it's if you're doing well, yes, but hold on because they they were forced to work through materials. I mean, the, one of the uh, the advantages of photography, one would imagine, is that it gives a, a faithful reproduction of exactly what is in front of the lens. And in fact, we were looking at some of the pictures from the the early part of the twentieth century. And what an eye opener that is, by the way, to realise how much changed on the panorama of the Thames between uh, eighteen twenty nine and just the start of the, those sixty years were f- phenomenally transformative. Um, but but isn't there that uh, expectation that what you see in a photograph is what's actually there, uh, unadulterated. My experience of photography is that it's it's never what just appears in front of the screen. It is always a, a creation. And the the better it's done, the less one is aware of it, of the, the hand of the creative photographer, printer, uh, compositor, whatever. But uh, it's the same with everything. You look at a magazine cover and you see a, a very pretty lady on the magazine cover she won't look like that for real 
that's been very very cleverly put together so every everywhere we look with photography we're being cheated in the sense that you're saying but i think that's what it's all about we, we're not doing that we're not making buildings look better than they are we're attempting to reproduce what is actually there and if you like it's a facsimile it is a photograph not the real thing and um we're trying to make it look as realistic and be a, a realistic record for the future as we can bear in mind that all the stuff we're doing is shot in high resolution and that is really what the project is it's these high resolution pictures it's not a website we are creating the website so that people can see what we've done and uh, we've had to develop the technology to let that happen but the real product of what we're doing is these high resolution pictures which we hope will last for the future as the Lee Panorama ones have lasted from 180 years ago. I was interested when we uh, first walked through the front door you described it as an archive. I wonder if you can unpack that. Well yes I suppose I suppose it is because things change and get lost and this is a record of the river now and the idea is that it shouldn't change it will change in reality but the um, images that we've recorded won't change and they won't be lost so i feel that's what an archive is it's a it's something for the future of now was there any particular reason for choosing the this year or these couple of years rather than any other no we were just ready to do it now weren't we well uh i can tell you a bit about the the history of the the project let's just go back to the, the year 2000 i was approached by the then mayor of richmond who was um, also the chair of planning in Richmond-upon-Thames. And he was very concerned that they were making decisions relating to planning in his committee uh, of buildings along the riverside without the committee seeing the buildings that they were proposing in the context of the river. They were looking at it from the road, they were looking at it in plans, but not from the riverside. And he came to me and said, do I know any way in which um, we could allow them to see it in the context of the river now uh, i thought back to 1977 when i was working on superman the movie and uh, i had a a couple of units there that i i, I ran um, one of which was doing backgrounds for the visual effects work to make it look as if the superhero was flying and on that i managed to find a way to join together lots of pictures uh, which we moved behind him to make it look as if he was he, he was moving and that was it was actually quite difficult to do because we wanted it to look realistic but at the same time it, we had uh, considerable problems getting these background plates done properly so i thought i could do it i think thought i knew how to do it uh, in 2000 so i i set about doing a test and we chose the bit opposite kingston which is called hampton wick and I did a, a short piece there, and it seemed to work quite well. Everybody was happy with it. So I was then commissioned by the Richmond Environment Trust to do the kilometre and a half of Hampton Wick, which I did, and it seemed to go down very well. Then we realised this was a very useful archive, although the very first ones I did were on film. They were on ordinary still photography, which I then digitised and put together through Photoshop. Uh, but we're talking about quite a long time ago when the technology was a lot cruder than it is now. And then I was commissioned uh, to do, I think it was uh, six for the Richmond Environment Trust. 
and um, we did one for Richmond Society and then one for Isleworth Society. So we were gradually doing more. Now, every time we showed these panoramas, people would come up to us after a showing and say, oh, it's all very well to do Isleworth, it's all very well to do Richmond, but you've got to do the whole river. We've got to record the whole river before it's all gone. And I used to sort of chuckle at this and say, well, you get the money and, you know, um, and the people who can do it, and I'll direct it for you. But... Um, it, uh, it never happened, nothing happened. <clears throat> anyway, that was back uh, some years ago. In 2009, I suddenly became very ill. I had a, a ruptured aorta and uh, nearly died. During the course of... Uh, I was in intensive care for three weeks, 21 days. A ruptured aortic aneurysm is something very few people survive. Those who do get medical treatment for it and don't die immediately... I'm told by the consultants that of, of those who get treatment, one in a hundred is lucky to survive. So I'm very fortunate that I survived. When I came out of intensive care, I found I, I had suffered during the course of it a stroke and I'd lost vision in my right eye and I was losing more in my left eye and I couldn't walk and all sorts of other things. So I was in a bit of a mess. But being here on the island, it's a wonderful place to convalesce and as I gradually came back into uh, consciousness and awareness that I was here again, we thought, well, what can we? What can I do now? I can't really put myself on the market again. I can't see properly, and, and my life revolved around being able to, to see. So um, I suddenly remember people talking about the Thames and photographing the whole of the Thames. So we put together this idea that we could do Panorama of the Thames. That was probably four years ago now. And originally, my idea was that we would do it like a movie. I would budget it properly with photographers, uh, compositors, uh, a, a, a very professional crew, and uh, I would direct it. But I didn't feel I was up to doing the fine detail. So Jill took on the role of finding information about every building... And we would use volunteers from the community, up, groups up and down the river, to contribute information about their own local buildings. And gradually the project sort of came together. And we thought, yes, this is doable. We walked it up, all the way up to Tower Bridge and back, both sides, a few times. And we came to the conclusion, yes, we could, we could do it. So I, I worked out a budget, which was horrendously large, because you know, these people are very expensive, they're very skilled very difficult to to actually schedule a budget because you don't know in, a, in advance what the weather's going to be like exactly you you've got to work it around tides because you want low tides as you want to see the outlets but it's very difficult to predict what the weather's going to be like and you need very different weather for photographing the north bank than the south bank also between hampton and tower bridge the river goes through every degree of the compass yeah, there's bits that f you name any degree and there'll be a bit of river that's pointing that way <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary so um, that makes photography very difficult with the light we, we soon found out having done a test that you couldn't just stick the camera on a boat and go up um, which of course is the obvious yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the shortcut to it all isn't it that's the first thing you think of everybody says that to start with but when you try and do it 
all sorts of problems come in. The, f- the first thing you find is that boats don't go up the centre of the river. They follow the channel, which means that it goes over very close to some um, banks and then comes right across and goes over to another bank. And if you're filming along a bank, suddenly the buildings are getting larger and smaller. You've got to compensate for that. That's very difficult. It also turns corners, and so the light changes all the time. And that could be very difficult. But amazing things happen. For example, you get jokers riding along on a bike, trying to keep up with the boat, waving at the camera, and you find that they're in every picture that you take <laughs> all the way along. Shoot them. <laughs> and that's very difficult to take them all out. <laughs> when you say take them all out, given what Jill just said... <laughs> Uh, Jill, I think we'd better hastily move to you. Because <laughs> we've got a pretty yeah, good idea of John's experience and what he's bringing to the project. What about yourself? Well, I've been um, sort of termed project editor. So um, I've liaised with local people and they've put in information about the history. 1829 is quite a long time ago and you do need historians there. And they've been fantastic. There's some wonderful stories about buildings along the river in 1829 and before. It's absolutely amazing. And then the modern day, we've also had some input, but we've probably done more of that work ourselves because it's easier to research it. So, uh, yes, that's my contribution. There's an awful lot of information in there now, and it's absolutely fascinating, some of it. There's one that always comes to mind, which is at 27, I think it is, the Terrace Barns. And in 1823, I think it was, there was a terrible double murder and suicide in this house and uh, it was mixed up with espionage and all sorts of things and that's all on the website absolutely fascinating oh yes because we should say of course that this is one of the angles maybe we haven't pushed this hard enough that all this historical information will be available you go into the app or the website or however you access it and it is accessible through all these all all the usual uh, suspects in terms of internet access and uh, you can dig up the history on the buildings that are there is it just the prominent ones or do you try and hit every building along the waterfront oh we try and hit every building along the waterfront and this is where our historians have been invaluable in the 1829 image they've got access to rate books and they've done all that kind of research so that's really interesting the industries are often more difficult because there wasn't necessarily a record of all the little industries and boat houses and boat builders and they of course were the lifeblood of the river so it's quite frustrating sometimes trying to find out about these types of things we go to local study centres and places like that where we can pick up snippets Um, but for instance you know Brunel's sawmills I mean he was doing um, Brunel's father Brunel's father Mark Brunel he he had a sawmill and he made boots for soldiers and he had them all doing sort of piecework so nobody needed to be a cobbler they all did their little bit and that was way beyond any kind of uh, industrial activity elsewhere so this is all very interesting and it all happened along the Thames there are a lot of windmills along the river as well and one particular one which is quite interesting is at Battersea is a horizontal mill it's a, a windmill that worked Uh, at least one assumes it works. I think there's evidence that it did work for a while, um, with the blades horizontally, and the wind was coming in through louvers on the side. There were problems with it, I think. The first one being that it took off on its first day. (laughs) I don't know what the problems were. But uh, it was converted to steam at one time. It's up near um, Battersea Bridge in Battersea. And then there was a, a big mill associated with it there there were a couple of these horizontal mills in the country and we've got details of it on the website and uh, we've even got drawings very interesting 
And there's also the history of the bridges, which isn't on the website yet, but which we're undertaking and, and we've got underway in many cases. And some of those are very interesting. I mean, Hampton Court had, has had several bridges, starting off with a lovely little chinoiserie effect one, which didn't last very long. It was all the fashion at the time, you know, things from China and Japan, and they did this bridge in that style. It must have looked lovely. We've got a, an old print of it, uh, and you can only imagine how it must have looked, really. So there have been several bridges. There's only one bridge that's survived right through without being changed through London, and that's Richmond Bridge, which was built in 1775, and that's been widened. But the history of the bridges is fascinating. Um, we're going to come back. Uh, we need to take a word from our sponsor, but we're going to come back and talk more about the panorama of the Thames project. If you want to take a look at it, by the way, uh, www.panoramaofthetems.com will uh, be a good place to start. And we'll be back at Garrick's 8 just after this. Do you buy monthly travel cards for your commute? You could save money and avoid renewal hassle with Commuter Club, a new way to access the big discounts offered by annual travel cards with all the flexibility of paying monthly. Find out how and sign up at www.commuterclub.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe and I'm on Garrick's 8. And I'm with Jill Sanders and John Ingalls. And I want to switch our attention away from the panorama of the Thames project, which has been the subject of our conversation so far, and uh, just get a feel really for what it's like to live on an island in the Thames. There can't be many of you doing this. No, there aren't very many people who live on islands in the Thames. We are a minority. And ours doesn't have a bridge, and that makes us even more of a minority. And people say to us, oh, isn't that a lot of bother? And honestly, sometimes it is, especially last winter where we had the terrific floods. And though the house was well above uh, the, the high flood line which was fortunate but a little bit worrying even so but the weight and pace of the river make it a very dangerous waterway you can't imagine old father thames up here being quite as fierce so you have a real respect for the river when it's like that but like the summer has been beautiful we south facing we go out on the deck we go grow grapes it's just beautiful and the birds you get to know the birds and the nesting and we have ducks hatching their ducklings in the garden and that's very nice so it's just the the potential to be a very polarized experience hasn't it we looked as we came across at the mooring post and you've made a mark there of the water line during some of that flooding and it was lapping up against the front doorstep here there is of course across on the bank of the river there's a water meadow which uh, this time is uh, uh, verdant and uh, beautiful and people walking their dogs there but as soon as it floods that's the first thing that gets covered over and presumably you've got to get your boat right the way over across the the meadow as well to dry land well actually i didn't take any of our boats they don't really lend themselves to that so i had to travel across with neighbors who had a flatbed dory and they could just run it up the bank because you lose everything you lose your mooring you lose your banks you don't know where the river starts stops it is dangerous like that too so it was all very inconvenient but there you are that's the river and it doesn't do it any harm to have a good scour out every now and then and we were fine as it turned out just a bit inconvenienced and you've been here since the early 90s i think 91 ish and uh, built the house yourselves and we're so close to surbiton that good life comparisons cannot be resisted (laughs) well they had the house built by a very good carpenter who's also a boat builder who's also a resident on this island so all very local and it's a nice little timber house very much in the style of uh, a thames 
property on, in the middle of the Thames. It's sort of low-key and pleasant to look at, I hope. People do talk about the good life a bit because we do grow a lot of our own produce because actually we have a allotment and um, loads of potatoes this year and we've got a wood-burning stove and we do try to have a sort of degree of self-sufficiency but only a degree Uh, but it's sensible to do that I think and rewarding. With the amount of time and care that you've lavished on the 1829 project and the sort of style of life that you're going for here and seem to be enjoying is there a bit of you that yearns for an older way of living? Well, I don't know about that. The poor old Thames at that time um, was really beginning to be polluted. It wasn't at its worst, but it was getting bad. You had a lot of industrial pollution. Nobody knew about it. They just poured everything into the Thames. You had a lot of um, manure going into the Thames, and well, I won't go into it, but um, it got really, really bad uh, with the advent of the water closet because that meant that all the little cesspits were getting filled up and overflowing in, in it all went into the river. Before that, it was actually collected uh, by, I think they're called dongers or gongers or something. They'd come at night and collect all the manure, both animal and human, and they'd ship it off to the market gardens. And so it was a kind of virtuous circle. But um, once the water closet came in, it all became out of control, and that's when it got really bad. But the industrial Thames was already becoming dirty and polluted at various places. Places like Gasworks were a disaster. And it meant that some could no longer come up the river they couldn't get past the pollution the deoxygenated zone I think that all finished about 1810-1820 salmon coming up the river and the fishermen were having to go much further afield away from central London either downstream or upstream to get catches but the interesting thing about the 1829 panorama I think he features just about every boat in there so you've got paddle steamers and steam launches you've got peter boats which are the fishing ones you've got the thames uh, wherries you've got the thames sailing barges they're all in there and in our panorama too you know we've got the modern day boats but i i think they're probably not quite as fascinating i can't drift away from you just yet i've now transplanted you in my mind into 1829 uh, with essentially a, a brown river surrounding you i'm imagining that um, there can't have been many people living on these islands and, unless they were really at the, the bottom end of uh, luck probably no the islands weren't occupied but they were used so mostly they were used as osier beds and osiers were very very important um, in the basket making industry they made everything out of osiers they made river edges they made uh, fishing weirs and eel weirs baskets for the market gardens so what osiers like a kind of reed or something yeah willow. yeah it's a willow so they coppiced the willow or pollarded the willow and each time they grew up they cut off these uh, sort of springy stems and and made lots of things with them depending how thick they were it was quite a, an industry and, 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 and we've got details of that we will have details of that on the website it's interesting the Thames of course has been de-industrialised to a massive extent and you look at the pictures of the port of London and that, well everything's changed there um, but the, one of the most notable changes I think particularly maybe along the south bank at various places I think Vauxhall maybe soon Battersea is the towering residential blocks that have sprung up and indeed some of the comparisons in the interest introductory video there were quite illuminating a a little church which uh, would have dominated the uh, landscape in the earlier print well now it's dwarfed by enormous towers not very pretty ones in my view what's your view given that you've got this perspective on things what's your view of the direction that the um, aesthetically I think that the the river is taking 
Well, uh, I try not to make any decision about that. My aim is to photograph what's there. I don't think there are many people that look at it that don't have an opinion. Uh, Some people say that they like the new buildings very much, um, and others are really shocked by them. I try and remain neutral. I'm just trying to photograph what is there at the moment. Why do you you strive for neutrality? Uh, Because I'm concerned that if I feel strongly one way or the other, it will affect the way I photograph it. I, I, I will choose angles and views of buildings that um, are, reflect how I feel about them. So I'm trying very hard to remain as neutral as I can. But certainly people do feel very strongly about it. And we've had all sorts of views of people that have seen the, the panoramas. That's, that really interests me. Uh, you, you hear overuse of the word passion when it comes to almost everything, but particularly a project of this sort, particularly projects chronicling London seem to invite use of that word. And yet you, you seem on that level to be aiming for something that's a lot more dispassionate. So I wonder what it is that carries you through and, and pushes you on as far as this project is concerned. I'm concerned that every time we go up along the river, buildings that we photographed, uh, maybe just in the last year, have gone. And I wonder what record there is of these buildings. And my aim is to try and photograph what is there, because I know it won't be there for very long. We've got um, 70s buildings now being demolished up at um, in Lambeth, and uh, the larger ones being built in, in their place. Uh, I don't know what architectural merit the buildings have. It's not really my my role but uh, I seek to photograph it to to log what's happening so what's what's driving me and why I think it's so important to be done is it's changing so quickly and what records are there of what's what's happening yeah that's true it's interesting that the south bank was much more industrial you had the posh people living on in Chelsea and places like that and funny enough quite a lot of those areas are remarkably little changed um, which is interesting whereas the South Bank was uh, industrial and windmills and gas works and goodness knows what else Uh, so I suppose that that's why that's been developed in the way it has now Uh, much bigger buildings more modern Uh, there hasn't been a lot I suppose that could have been listed or kept or conserved so I think that's probably what's what's happened. I suppose there's a, something that's worrying me a little bit about the project. We're we talking about uh, preserving these views for the future as an historical record. Uh, with the 1829 version, watermark though they may be, there's, there's a physical product there. And I guess what I'm worried about is that somewhere there's a, a giant plug and a giant cleaner who's uh, hoovering away and the, uh, the plug's going to come out, the internet goes down. And we're going to be missing a lot of this stuff, which we assumed would be forever because it's all just ones and zeros. Is there any thought in your mind to creating a sort of, sort of a physical safety backup? Yes. Well, you're quite right that the, the Internet is very ephemeral. Websites that were made, say, five years ago can now be completely gone and no record at all of them. So it, we do tend to think that if it's on the web, it's there to stay and it most definitely isn't. We had much better records kept from the days when it was all on paper, where we've got records now in record offices of all sorts of things and early photographic prints 
And the digital prints, um, the in, in remaining in digital form, I don't know. But what we're doing is our master images are higher resolution than much higher resolution than appears on the web. And that really is the, is the product. So once the project is complete, all those masters will be kept, hopefully, uh, I haven't had confirmation of this yet, but hopefully by the British Library. The British Library has the UK Web Archive, and they will keep um, a record on their various servers of the uh, the web version of this. But it's the high-resolution version that I'm more concerned about. So it, it really should belong in a museum or somewhere where they'll look after it in the long term as an archive. Uh, we certainly couldn't do that ourselves. You need to very very um, specialized uh, uh, records but yes, all you need is one slightly higher tide and that's <laughs> that will be good. the 1829 panorama um there are copies of it but it's very difficult to access and some of them are in a very poor state so it's not readily seen so it's good to have that on the website because everybody can now enjoy and see that and probably make it quite famous i hope but there will be um a physical record of the 1829 lee panorama over and above the originals that have been left which are quite few and far between and very difficult to access and often in a very poor state thames and hudson are going to publish our digital restoration of the lee of the 1829 panorama and in a book in a new book with the information much of the information that we've researched into those uh, pictures so we'll have all the interesting information about the buildings and the places and the river etc such as we have on the website so that will be coming out i believe in about a year or 18 months it's quite a long haul to produce a big book like that so we're really looking forward to seeing that and it will mean that there is a a nice physical copy of the 1829 panorama that people can treat themselves to have you got a sense of where the bulk of interest is coming from i can imagine there's several different categories of person who might well be interested in this yeah, there are lots of different people interested in the entire project and they range from people who can no longer get aboard their boats because they're too old and infirm but can still get along the river to um, educationalists, geographers, all sorts of people, architects, yeah, all sorts of people find it extremely interesting. I think it will be very educational. Um, I was looking at the new curriculum and I work with schools and I can see it being wonderful for students and pupils. It brings together everything, you know, history, geography, social change, art heritage everything it's so interesting so i think it has a really broad reach and and literally so as well it's what 26 miles worth of river um the website again www.panoramaofthetems.com whoever invented the internet why on earth did they pick w three of those the longest letter anything would have been World better wide web i suppose i know oh, yeah there's no excuse for that. um all the w's panoramaofthetems.com uh, get on there have a look at that i would like to leave us because we do have to we do have to finish unfortunately but i'd like to uh, finish with tips that people definitely won't have thought of for living on an island in a river never go to sea without a paddle <laughs> uh, John Mumfrey whenever you tie up a boat always tie up the front rope first because if you tie up, if you tie up the back rope it'll, the boat will turn on you so you learn it very quickly actually you learn it the first day <laughs> and, and, and the last one I would say start your engine before you cast off 
sound tip. Most of these seem to be about getting away from an island, but that uh, they sound like wise advice. Uh, John Ingalls, Jill Sanders, thanks very much for having us today. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Jill Sanders and John Ingalls. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. from